Well, we are gathered here as God's people to worship in his presence. And as we come to gather to worship, we ask this question, what matters to God when we gather as a local church to worship God? There's a lot of books that have views on this out there. A lot of people have opinions out there, but the most important opinion is God's. And so we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 through chapter 14, and we find God's opinion on how we should worship him, what matters to God in worship. And so these four chapters in 1 Corinthians, they give us God's view, God's perspective on what matters as we gather to worship him in the local church. So open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And our focus this morning will be 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2 through verse 16. And in verse 2, we will remember that last week we saw that all worship of God is sourced in what God has passed on to us in the word of God through the apostolic traditions written down in the New Testament. In fact, to look at verse number 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, the Bible says, Now I commend you, speaking to the church, this local church in Corinth, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. And of course, this is the Apostle Paul. And the traditions that he is speaking about are not the traditions of the Catholic Church or the traditions of a Baptist Church or any type of denominational traditions. The traditions are speaking of the teachings that the apostles, and particularly here, the Apostle Paul, delivered to the church. And those teachings are found in God's Word. So as we gather as God's people to worship God, the question we ask is what does the scripture say about what matters to God in worship? The answer we find is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. And in this text, it tells us that the worship of God includes us honoring him as our authority and then therefore also living under his order of authority, in humility, in submission, with joy. And the big idea of this text that we saw last week was that since God is the authority, since he's the ultimate authority, his order of authority must matter to his church, particularly when we gather as his church. And so verse 3 presents this truth truth for us. Look down in verse number 3. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. And again, if you're with us for the first time, this is us going verse by verse through the book of 1 Corinthians. So this is the next text that we're dealing with. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 says, But I, that's Paul, want you, that's the church, to understand. And then he's going to present this truth statement that will guide the rest of this sermon and the rest of this text. And that is in verse 3 that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, 
and the head of Christ is God. So if you're here with us for the first time today, okay, this is not a text that a pastor typically goes to and picks to preach on. This is a text that we pre- we're preaching because this is the next verse God has for us. And we believe this is what God has led us to teach today. And this verse presents a universal truth, though, that is a very important truth that God wants us to grasp. And that truth is rooted in the triune nature of God. And here's the truth. The truth is that God has an order of authority in which he wants us to submit to. God has an order of authority. And in that order, there's a head. That's the idea of a leader, an authority. And there's those who fall under that authority. There are those who follow and submit to that authority. And so God's order of authority for the church and in the home is gender specific. That's what you see here in this verse. It's gender specific. And so what's God's order of authority in the home? It's that a husband is to lead and a wife is to follow. And in the church, it's that qualified men are to lead in the church in that position of preaching and teaching to the congregation. And so if you look in verse 3, you can see this order of authority. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of a husband is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. There's a, there's a chain of command there. And the reality is that God operates through an order of authority. That doctrine is also known as headship. And unfortunately, in our society, we view this order of authority, this headship negatively. I think partly it's because we have a wrong view of authority. Because we look at authority as those who are the powerful, those who are the important ones. And we look at those who are in the following position, those who are the followship, if you want to say it that way. They are the ones who are not important. They're the ones who are inferior. They're the weak ones. And it's not true. That's a wrong way to look at it. It's not God's perspective, and it's not the truth. And so God's word, God's nature, God's view says that there's one who's a leader, and there's those who follow, and they both have equal importance. One is not more important than the other. One is not more valuable than the other. Both have responsibilities. Both both the leader and the follower have responsibilities. And they actually should function together, complementing one another to fulfill God's will. This is true in the Trinity. This should be true in the church. This should be true in a marriage. So the truth of this text, the universal truth of this text is up on the screen there. You can see it. That is that we must function under God's order of authority in our distinct gender roles. And again, when I say gender, I'm speaking of male and female according to what God's word teaches us. So verse 3 gives this universal truth. And I spent 45 minutes last week speaking on that. So if you didn't get that, you can go back and listen to that. But then notice verse 4. This verse 4 gives the cultural application. So look at verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies, and in verse 5 speaks about a woman who prays and prophesies. So again, let me pause to say we're speaking about a worship service. This is men and women gathering together as the local church to pray. That's to speak to God. To prophesy, that's to speak about God. And so we had that happening up here. We had men and women, all of us in here, were speaking about God. That's, that's, that's a form of prophecy. 
And so here you have men and women coming together to worship God and notice that it's appropriate, it's holy to have this take place in a setting like this. The footnote I would give is 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We'll deal with that in a couple weeks. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12 instructs us that the authoritative position of preaching and teaching uh, the whole congregation is to be gender-specific to men. But other than that, men and women can, and actually I think we should see from this, they should join together to speak to God in prayer, to speak about God. And then notice in verse 4, as he goes on to say, that every man who prophesies or prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every Wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. What does that verse mean? Well, that's what you're wanting to know, I'm, I'm certain. So hopefully you do. That's why you're here today. So what does it mean to have your head covered? Well, for men, most historians agree that a man's head covering was some type of toga that he pulled over his head. For women, there are really two views. One view is that it was some type of shawl that she could pull over her head or a cloth that covered her hair. So think about the the Christmas pageant and the little girl that's going to be Mary. You know, she goes to her bathroom and she gets a towel, you know. She has some type of cloth that goes over her head. The other view is that this was actually some type of veil that even went over your face. The Greek word for cover there in these two verses is also used in Genesis chapter 38, verse 15, to speak of of Tamar. And in the Greek Septuagint, that same word is used of a veil that went over her face, so much so that Judah couldn't even see who she was. And so which one was it? Well, there's a lot of data on both sides, but clearly it was a cultural covering, something that was unique to that time period. And why was it so shameful for men to wear a head covering and, sh- and shameful, shameful for a woman not to wear a head covering? No, let me get that right because I think I'm going to mess this up. Why was it shameful for men to wear one and for women not to wear one? That's right. I got it right. Well, there are different opinions on this. So I'm just going to go through a couple of opinions. So I'm going to pretend like you're in class here. You're going to hear different views on this. And then we'll kind of get back to the, rex- the rest of the text here. What was the origin of this? Well, historians have found that the Romans would often, uh, men would often go into the temple and they would worship their idols by pulling their toga over their head. So they'd have a head covering. So some people say a head covering for a man was wrong because that's how the Romans worshiped idols. Others, like the ESV study Bible, so if you have an ESV study Bible or another one, it might say, that a woman's head covering was a sign of marriage. So it was something for women to do, so men should not do that. So why was it shameful for women to go without a head covering and worship? Again, some say it represented a woman was married. Others say that actually all respectable women wore head coverings, and actually only harlots took the head covering off. So if you wanted to know who was a harlot, who was a prostitute, those were the ladies without head coverings. Others say that the high-fashioned women started to go without head coverings so they could show off their hair, their braids, their gold, all that kind of stuff. And so it was a way for rich women to show off. 
Now, I give you all those because people take these different historical and, you know, things from literature and archaeology, and they like to try to prove a point. And my point is, we don't exactly know the origins of it. And that's okay. I think it's okay. Why is that okay? Well, because the text tells us what the meaning was. In other words, in other words, it's not that important that we know the exact origin of the meaning of this because the text tells us. And I think that happens in our society as well. Like we, we do things, we know they have a meaning, but we don't know why. For instance, why do you put your hand, your right hand over your heart when you pledge allegiance to the flag? Why do we do that? I mean, you say, well, it's out of respect. But why do you do that? I mean, why don't you put it on your head like this? Or why don't you, you know, put your stand up straight? Or sal-? The point is, you, you see what I'm saying? So we have things we do, symbols that we don't really know why we do them. We know maybe what they represent, but not the origins. So I think the same thing is true at this. We're not going to exactly know why they did what they did. But we knew, do know what it represented. This text tells us very clearly, and it tells us that the head covering for a woman represented that she was living in submission to her husband, that she was putting herself under the authority of her husband. So the head covering was gender-specific to the woman. And so I think in one sense, for a man to wear a head covering, it was a shame. Why? Because that's what the women did. This is what the text teaches here. It would be like a man coming into this service wearing a dress with high heels and lipstick. In our society, at least in most of our society, that's still shameful to do, right? In other words, it was, it's for women to do that. And so I think that's the idea here as well. And for women not to wear a head covering was also shameful for her because it was like her saying that I do not care to live under the authority of my husband. So let's think about that and then go to verse number four and think about verse four and five. So verse four, every man who prophesies, I'm sorry, who prays or prophesies with his head, now think about that, his physical noggin, his head, covered, dishonors his head. Now I think there's a play on words here. Yes, it's speaking about his head, but ultimately it's linking us back to verse three. And who was the, the man's head in verse three? It was Christ. So he's saying that when you cover your head, then you are dishonoring Christ, your authority. And so you can notice Paul has the truth in verse 3, and then in verse 4, he has the application for the men. And then in verse 4, he has the same type of pattern here. Look at um, verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 5, he has the same type of pattern here. Look at verse 5. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head, again, that's her physical head, uncovered, dishonors her head. And again, this is linking us back to verse 3, to her spiritual head, who is what? Who's her spiritual head? It's her husband. That's what verse 3 says. So in Corinth, for a wife to come into a church without wearing a head covering was dishonoring to her husband. It was a fact. It was just the way it was there. Why was it? I don't know. We don't need to know. All we need to know is that the scripture says that's what it was. It was a shame for her. And it was so evident that in verse 5, what does it say at the very end of verse 5? It's the same as if her head were shaven. So in Corinth, to not put a head cover on for a woman was a shame. And it was so shameful, it's like shaving your hair off. And why was that? Well, it's because it was a cultural symbol that was obvious and obviously had powerful implications. 
Notice verse number 10. You can see this is confirmed there in verse 10 where the scripture says, and that is why a wife ought to have, and notice it's a symbol of authority on her head. So that's what the head covering was. So here's the question for us. Should women wear a head covering in church today? Should women wear a head covering in church today? And the answer is, the answer is, the answer is hermeneutics. That's the answer. The answer depends on your hermeneutics. In other words, it depends how you interpret scripture. And so that's why it's so important that we have a biblical understanding of how we interpret scripture. When we study scripture, we recognize the truth never changes. God is truth, and God is true. And the truth about God, the truth in his word never changes. Truth is universal. Truth is cross-cultural. But the application of truth might look different in different societies. That is why over and over I pointed out to you that there's a universal truth in verse 3, a cross-cultural truth, and then there are in verse 4 and 5, there are applications of that truth. And I think they are cultural applications. When we interpret scripture, we must recognize the truth never changes, but cultural applications do. And so what I want to do is I want to just kind of prove this to you, okay? I want to walk through this with you because there are people who come to this conclusion and they say, well, we should wear head covering. So I think I, I thought, well, I should put a sermon together so that some of those people, if they ever want to hear what I think the Bible teaches, they can hear that. And then we'll get to the next part in just a moment. So let's just talk about this. Four reasons the application of the head covering was cultural. Number one is cultural symbols communicate universal truths. Cultural symbols communicate universal truths. Every society communicates ideas with, uh, with symbols. Literally, words are made up of what? Of symbols. You put those symbols together, and they make up words. And so one of our symbols is A, right? And A says, there you go. come on, class. A says, ah, that's right. And you put those symbols together. They make words, and we say those words mean something. So for instance, if I was to say to you today, you look nice. What does that communicate to you? Probably that you look beautiful or you dressed well. Do you realize at one time the word nice meant foolish? It meant that you lack mental capabilities. So if I come up to you and said you look nice, I'm saying you're a fool, right? Now, that doesn't mean that today. Why is that? Because symbols change meaning. Or how about a couple words I'll throw out there? Has the word gay changed meaning? Has the word dumb changed meaning? One time I meant mute. Has that changed now? If I say you're, that person is dumb, I'm, you're not going to think generally that they're mute, right? And so the point is, is that societies have symbols and give those symbols meaning. And I'll give you a couple other examples. Symbols communicate, for instance, the thumbs up. In America, if you give someone the thumbs up, that means you did a good job. In other cultures, it means bad things. How about a ring on the left hand? That's a symbol that I'm married. How about kneeling at a football game? If you're 2018 Tim Tebow and you kneel before a game, you're praying, right? That's a symbol for him. And some people were offended by that. And then if it's 2020 and you're kneeling at the national anthem, 
That's a symbol of protesting. Do you see what I'm saying, though? The point is we have symbols. We attach meaning to them. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I want to show this to you in the scripture, how this plays out in the scripture. 1 Corinthians 16. Five times in the New Testament, we are commanded to do something you probably did not practice today. 1 Corinthians 16, 20. 1 Corinthians 16, 20. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, how many of you came in here and you kissed one another? I asked one of my kids, what would you think if tomorrow someone came up to you and they gave you a great big kiss? And they said, gross. And I thought, you probably should call the police, okay? <laughs> and why is that? Because meaning... Uh, symbols change their meaning. And, and so you have the scripture here. What's, what's, the, what's the truth of this passage? I mean, how do you apply this command here? Well, there's an unchanging truth. What's the unchanging truth? We are to greet one another in love and acceptance, right? So when we see each other, we're to do that. And what's it going to look like in our culture, in our society? Well, it might mean a hug. When I came out to California, people hugged a lot more than they did in South Carolina, okay? It might mean a handshake. It might mean a fist bump for some people. But the point is, is that you understand there's a difference between the truth that's being communicated and the, the cultural application. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. That's the other way in the scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 2. So again, we find an unchangeable truth to be applied within our cultural context. 1 Timothy chapter 2, look at verse 8. Paul writes, I desire then that in every place, and he's talking about churches, so in all these local churches, men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So men are to pray publicly, that's appropriate to do, and we're to do that in holiness with our hands raised. Now how many of you did that today? When Justin came up here, did he disobey God by not raising his hands up? Well, no, we recognize that there's an unchanging truth. That is, we are to pray publicly. That's commanded in Scripture, so Justin did that. We have other times where Jorge did that. And we're to do that without hypocrisy. And, and the idea of raising your hands like that, does that mean something that we should do that? And if we don't do that, we're disobeying God? No, what's the, what's the cultural application for us? In other words, how do we apply that in our culture? Well, we all bowed our heads, right? All of you, most of you <laughs> bowed your head. Sometimes we fold our hands like this. Sometimes we do put our hands up. The point is we apply it within the cultural context that we are living in. Or look at verse number nine. Verse nine says, likewise also, this is speaking of a worship service, women should adorn themselves in respectful apparel with modest and self-control, not with braided hair or gold, and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So if you came in here and your hair's braided, you have gold maybe in your hair or in your ears or on your neck or something, are you a wicked sinner? Is that what this is saying here? No, it's not the, what this is saying. This is not, the point of this passage is not to, to lay out legalistic rules for us to check the boxes so we can say we're good people. That's not what this passage is saying at all. That's not the teaching of the New Testament. The unchanging truth is do not come to a worship service to show off your clothes, to show off your body, to show off your money. 
But what you should, what should stand out for a woman in a worship service is her good works. In other words, dress in a way, your conduct should be in such a way that it doesn't draw attention to you, but it draws attention to Christ. That's the point of this text. And so what does that look like in our society? So, so go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So I just want to kind of show you these examples that we have these, these truths that are universal and they're communicated with cultural symbols. Second, I would say this, that your cultural context will affect the meaning of a symbol. Your cultural context will affect the meaning of a symbol. In some churches, ladies wear hats. Sometimes they wear uh, something else on their head, maybe even a bow. And they do that to obey 1 Corinthians 11. And let me say this. I'm not condemning those people. I'm just trying to think logically through what the Bible teaches about this. But I think that those individuals probably need to ask this question, and that is, does that, whatever you're putting on your head as a lady, does it actually symbolize submission to the husband in the 21st century? When people see that hat, do they think, oh, wow, she's a very humble person. She obviously is following her, her husband. In fact, I would ask if a person feels compelled to obey that cultural symbol, what about kissing one another? Like, why don't we obey that? Or why don't we put our hands up? And so my point is that I think there's more for us to consider. And your cultural context will affect the meaning of that symbol. So in the Corinthian culture, the head covering was a clear symbol. I mean, so much so in the church and the society, it was, it was a shameful thing. But in ours, it has changed meaning. I want you to think about some other examples. Behind us, we have this cross. What, what is the meaning? What's the symbol of that cross? Well, if you're in the first century and you're a criminal and you're going to die on a cross, it means something different than it means to us, right? It's, a, it's a torch, an instrument for torture. If you're in the 17th century, if you're a 17th century Baptist living in Massachusetts, it's a symbol of an idol. Literally, they believe that crosses were symbols of idols. They symbolize idol worship because the Catholic Church and even some in the Church of England use that to worship um, saints and worship. They bow before the, the cross. Roger Williams literally cut out the cross on the Massachusetts flag. So they have their flag. If you look at the flag from that time, the Massachusetts flag has a had a cross on it. He literally cut the cross out so he wouldn't have to carry around an idol. And was that an appropriate application? I think so. But what does it mean for us today? What's a symbol of what Christ did for us to die on the cross for our sins? So does that get the, you get the point? Like symbols change. Let me give another one just to kind of bring it all home here. In Nigeria and across Africa, I was reading an article that says wearing the jihab hab, for a woman is regarded as an act of worship for Muslims. So in other words, in some of these societies, a head covering distinguishes you from being a Muslim or a Christian. And so the Christian women over there don't wear head coverings because it would show that they were submitting to Islam. Let me give one last example. There's a lot of people who love John Calvin. You know, John Calvin wore a head covering when he preached. So if you like John Calvin, then you probably should consider that. Now, even for a man like him, he didn't believe that applied to him in his time. The, the third one would be priests were commanded to wear head coverings in worship. Exodus chapter 28 talks about the high priests and the other Levitical priests, and they were wearing something on their head when they worshiped. And then the fourth one would be 
The purpose of this passage is not how to dress. It's not giving you a list of dress codes for coming into church. It's actually the purpose of this passage is to honor God's authority by reflecting our distinct gender roles. And actually, from verse 6 down to verse 16, Paul lists reason after reason after reason to obey the scripture found in verse 3. All his lists of reasons aren't to say you should wear a head covering. It's to say we should honor the Lord in, this, in a particular way. Obviously, it was culturally represented by wearing a head covering. But the idea is, in verse 3, is that we must operate under God's order of authority. And so when he presents all these arguments, he's not saying you should wear a head covering because Eve wore a head covering. Uh, no, she didn't wear a head covering. Why should you wear a head covering? Because Eve submitted herself to Adam. That was God's creative design. So the point is, is that this text is teaching us about God's order of authority. Now, some people will say, well, how do you know that the order of authority is not just cultural? Why is that not just cultural? Because that truth is linked, it's anchored into eternal, unchanging realities like the Trinity and creation. And so what I want to do the rest of the time is go through some of these and show you these eternal realities that tell us why we must submit to God's order of authority. And so specifically, let's think about it this way. Why must a husband and a wife honor God and their distinct roles under God's order of authority? Number one, because role distinctions matter in the triune Godhead. Look at verse number three. Verse number three, I'm, I'm not going to teach you this again, but remember verse three teaches us that there's an order of authority in the Godhead. God the Father, he leads the Son. The Son follows the Father. The, the Son is not inferior to the Father. The Son actually has a lot of authority in himself granted to him from the Father. So the point is that there are distinct roles in the Trinity, and therefore God has designed our world to have individuals have distinct roles. And in a marriage, God has a role for the husband and a role for the wife. How about the second one here? Because your conduct communicates your distinct role. Your conduct communicates your distinct role. Look at verse number four. I'm going to read verse four through verse six. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. That's Christ. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head, that's her husband, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So what he's teaching here is this. Your conduct communicates it communicates. And so think about a husband. For a husband, how you treat your wife, how you speak about your wife, how you speak to your wife communicates your love for her or your lack of love for her. It communicates how you are um, before Christ, if you're obeying Christ, if you're honoring Christ. If a husband is, is constantly putting his wife down, if a, if a husband is constantly belittling his wife, then what does that communicate about how he's leading her? What does that communicate about how he's following Christ? Right, Because all leaders are followers to begin with, right? 
And so if a husband is not leading his wife in love and in humility, what does that demonstrate? It demonstrates that he is not following Christ in love and humility. How about for the wife? A wife, your conduct, even I would say, according to this text, how you dress, it communicates your honor for your husband. If a wife is constantly correcting and arguing with her husband in a group setting, what does that communicate? Proverbs 12, 4, a wife of noble character is her husband's crown, but a disgraceful wife is like decay in his bones. I heard a pastor tell a story once about a man in their church, a husband in their church, who kind of walked around with his head down all the time. And he talked about his wife and how she would dominate him. She would often belittle him. She wanted everyone to make sure they knew that she was smarter, that she was better. And the pastor said it was like this man hung his head in shame. And I think that's what you see in this text here. It's how we treat our spouse, how we treat each other. It communicates, it communicates. Look at verse number seven, third, the third reason here, because God created male and female in the particular role, in a particular role, and for a particular purpose. So God created male and female in a particular role, particular order, and for a particular purpose. Look at verse 7. For a man ought ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. So Paul argued that God created man in God's image and for God's glory. And let me pause and say that, yes, women were also made in God's image. Together they reflect and image God. But Paul's point here is not about that. It's not about, not about being made in God's image. It's about the order of creation and the purpose of that order. And so what is the order of creation? Well, God first created man, and then God created woman. And then God had a purpose in that order of creation. Look at verse 8. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So why must a husband and wife honor God and their distinct roles? Because that's the way God designed it. God made man first and then woman, and he did that on purpose. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't like, well, that's just the way that it happened. It's by chance. No, God did it on purpose. He was communicating something. And he wasn't communicating that the men are more important and the women are less important. He wasn't saying one's superior, one's inferior. Not at all. That's not what he was trying to communicate. God created man and woman in that order so it would be seen that man was to be the one to lead the home. And that's what this text is teaching. In fact, even how God created Adam and Eve was on purpose. Remember Genesis chapter 2. God made man from where? The dust of the ground. And then God said, as he made man, there was no woman. He made man. He says, it is not good that man should be alone. So everything else in creation was good except for one thing, and that is man being alone. And so God made Eve from the side of Adam, from Adam's rib. And God did it that way on purpose. 
It wasn't because that was the only way a woman could be made, right? It was because God wanted to communicate something, and that is that Adam and Eve are of the same substance. They're made of the same stuff. They're both flesh, and therefore they're equal. They're equally made in God's image, but they also are different. Different. Adam and Eve are biologically different. They're psychologically different, and they have different roles in the home. What was Adam's role? It was to lead his wife to fulfill God's will for both of them. For Eve, it was to be his helper. That's what verse 9 is teaching. Look at verse 9. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. He's going back to creation, and he's saying, remember Adam and Eve. God made Eve to come alongside of Adam and partner with him to do God's will. Listen to this quote from the 1700s. Martin, or Matthew Henry died in 1714. I don't know when he wrote this, but this was from a while ago. This is what he wrote. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, near his heart to be beloved. That's pretty good, isn't it? And friends, that is true Christianity right there, okay? And that didn't didn't get written two years ago. That was written over, what, 300 years ago, right? 250? Someone do the math for me. That teaching was first found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, when God said, I will will make Adam a helper fit for him. Literally, a, a helper fit means that it's like him, but it's his opposite. It's made of the same stuff. She's made of the same stuff, but she's different, and she compliments him. Not compliment like you look good, but compliment like fits him well. Adam alone was like a a half a piece of the puzzle. And when God made Eve, it was like he made the other half and put them together. Again, of the same stuff, but there were differences. And God put them together, and they fit together before the fall. They fit together perfectly so they could be fulfilled and fulfill God's purposes for them. Our family on Friday night watched um, a couple of I Love Lucy TV shows. Are you familiar with that? I don't really recommend watching certain TV shows, but we just laughed and laughed and laughed. We've probably watched too many of those shows. But uh, we were talking about how, how can a show like that be funny 70 years later? And I think as we were thinking about it, we realized that most of their jokes are poking fun at gender distinctions. You know, Lucy and Desi, is that right? Desi? Desi. So, you know, they're, they're, the whole time they're making jokes about men and women and, and husbands and wives. So let me give you a couple examples. Here's Lucy. She says, a man who correctly guesses a woman's age may be smart, but he's not very bright. Now, now, why is that funny? Because we recognize, because it's true, right? Because we recognize there are differences between men and women. Here's another one. This is my last one, okay? I promise. 
The secret for a wife staying young is to live honestly, eat slowly, and lie about her age. The secret for a husband staying young is to live honestly, eat slowly, and lie about his wife's age. But, you know, again, that's funny because there are distinctions. And God made us that way on purpose, not just for laughs, but because a husband and a wife are meant to come together, to complement, to fit well together. And we need to celebrate that. We need to celebrate the differences between men and women. We like to joke about it. Sometimes people like to complain about it. Sometimes people like to erase the differences. But actually, they're designed by God on purpose. It should be a blessing. It should be a blessing in marriage. When we come together in marriage, husbands and wives, we shouldn't come together to compete, but to complete, right? We shouldn't come together to compete, but to complete to compete, but to complete. The same is true in the church. In the church, men and women, there are different gifts that God has given to women. There are different gifts that God has given to men, and we should value those. You think about Jesus, you think about the, the early church. I mean, think about how valuable women were in the ministry of Jesus. I mean, men and women equally sat at Jesus' feet to learn. The men, when Christ died, the men all ran away. But the women were the ones that went to the tomb. Or think about even like Lydia and the church of Philippi, how she, through her leadership, was able to see the church grow. So why must a husband and wife honor God in their distinct roles? Because, fourth, your testimony matters. Look at verse number nine. Verse nine, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Why? Because of the angels. Now, this could be another long footnote. I'm not going to do that. Let me just say there's two views. One view is that this is elders in the church, the pastors. So the word angels could be translated messengers. Or the other view is that these are actually heavenly angels. I take that view. Because 1 Peter chapter 1 says that angels are viewing what's happening here. And they look on in awe and wonder at the church as we worship God. And so as we fall under God's authority and our distinct roles, the angels look on. And it's a testimony to them that we are honoring the authority of God and his order of authority. And then in verses 11 and 12, we really spoke about this last week. It's really a footnote that talks about how men and women are both equal in value and importance. And then the argument continues in verse 13. So I'll start in verse 11 and go through verse 13. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. They need each other. For as women, as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are of God. Verse 13 Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? So here our fifth reason. Fifth reason is because nature tells us it matters. This is our last one. Nature tells us it matters. He says, judge for yourselves. Think about it for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Now we go that, we read that and we go, I don't know, is it? But why is that? Again, this is a cultural application. It was a cultural practice of of covering your head in worship for women that signified 
that she was in submission to her husband. It was a feminine sign. In other words, in societies, men and women, they have distinct ways of expressing their gender. And that's, that's appropriate. Men should express themselves as men, and women should express themselves as women. That's what he's talking about here. Why? Why is that? Because nature teaches us that is proper. Verse 14, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So let me first say what this is not saying. This is not saying a certain length of hair is sinful. Now, can you find in there a prescribed length of hair in those verses? It's not in there. You know why? Because that's not the point of this text. His point is not to say long hair on men is sinful and short hair on women is sinful. Verses 14 and 15 is an appeal to nature's instinct. Men naturally don't care much about their hair. Some men do, I understand. Some men more than they actually should. But if, if a man shaves his head, typically people don't mind making jokes about it. And I can testify to this because you're all looking at me thinking about my bald head right now. But for a woman, if she loses her hair, she gets cancer and has chemotherapy and loses her hair, it's not something to joke about. It's not typically something that they even like to talk about. Why is that? Because God designed men and women differently. We were programmed to think differently. It's nature's instinct. And so Paul was appealing to the distinction between these two gender, genders. Generally, women care more about their hair. It's their glory. And generally, men don't care as much about their hair. And so Paul was teaching it's good for men to consider what it looks like to be a man it's good for women to consider what it looks like to be a woman. Now, let me pause to say, this is not something, this is not for us to endorse uh, cultural stereotypes of hyper-masculinity, you know, where the real men, they drive trucks and wear boots, you know. Okay, that's, that's not the application of this. Or hyper-femininity, that's, you know, kind of the idea that, well, girls, they shouldn't, they shouldn't play sports. They should just stay at home and knit, okay? That is not what this is teaching, okay? <laughs> so those are extremes that you could go to, and you shouldn't go to those extremes. Because what what's he saying in verse number 13? He says, judge for yourself. Use your common sense. Look at nature. And apply this to yourself. Again, another reason to pause and think about this. This also doesn't mean that you get to be the church legalist, you know? You get to go around and say, I don't know if in my culture that represents this, right? And so in our church service, it's not you going around people and being like, you check off the five distinctions of what I think is a man, right? This is not the point. The point he's making here is that we're all individually to consider how we express being male and being female. And the, dis the distinctions of gender do matter. God created us differently. And so those, those distinctions must matter to us. Well, there's a lot of issues here in this text, isn't there? <laughs> a lot of controversy. So look at verse 16. If anyone is inclined to, inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And so let's be unified in following Christ. Let me end this, end with this. And that is, let's consider three ways to apply this quickly. 
First of all, let's be careful how we interpret and apply Scripture. We are to stay centered on the path of biblical interpretation, biblical hermeneutics. It's easy to fall to the one side, to the ditch of legalism, to look at a text like this and say, oh, I need to follow these rules. And if I, if I wear a head covering, if I lift my hands, if I do this, if I do that, then I'm a, I'm a righteous person. God's going to like me more. Nope. Your righteousness doesn't count in heaven, okay? When you get to heaven, God's going to care zero about your righteousness. It's only about Christ's righteousness. The only righteousness that is accepted in heaven is Jesus Christ. And you can only have that righteousness when you believe in Jesus Christ. And so you got to be careful. Let's not fall into the ditch of, well, what are all the rules and how should we dress? And are we checking off all the boxes? It's not that. Or or fall on the other side of the ditch into modernism where we think, well, the Bible's old-fashioned. Is it really... Is that really what God wants us to do? Should we really submit to our husbands? Should we really submit to leadership? Should we really follow these these things that are really culturally not something that's followed by many Americans? So let's stay on the path of faithfulness to Scripture. Humble ourselves before the Lord under his words, under his word, asking the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds and to, to, to accurately divide the word of truth. Second application Let's examine how we are honoring God. How are we honoring God in our marriage? If we're not married, how are you honoring God in the church, in your other relationships? How are we honoring God as men? And how are we honoring God as as women? How are we honoring the other gender that God has made? And the third application, I think here, is that we, we need to pray. We need to pray for our country. We need to pray for this next generation. We need to pray for our kids and our grandkids, and we need to pray for those who are being influenced by this, right? Because our culture is confused about all this stuff. And it's not just a confusion. It's actually deception from Satan, right? Girls are being told, oh, you can be a boy if you want to, right? Or the the gender distinctions don't matter, right? There's so much confusion around this, and it's so, so very sad. And so let's pray. And what do we pray for? Let's pray that the gospel can get to these people, that we can be those who give the gospel to them because it's only Christ who can save the soul. It's only Christ who can make you a new creation. It's only Christ who can forgive. It's only Christ who can, who can renew the mind. It's only Christ who can give you the lasting joy and peace that comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's only Christ that we find our And so let's pray, let's pray that God would use us to be able to spread his good news. Let's pray.